Happy New Year, listeners. After a brief break in the podcast action, I am really looking forward to jumping into 2023 with each and every one of you. I hope you are feeling refreshed after the holiday season and that your year is off to a good start. I am wishing you a 2023 full of laughter, good health, loved ones, and lots and lots of good reading material. To that end, it's time to introduce the book that's up for discussion today. E.B. White's The Trumpet of the Swan played a very special role in my own childhood, so it feels like the ideal way to get things rolling this year. The Trumpet of the Swan was published in 1970, the third of White's novels for children. Like its predecessors, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little, it blends the human and animal worlds and mixes a grounded reality with a healthy measure of whimsy, we meet a young swan named Louis, who, unlike his siblings and parents, is unable to chirp or trumpet. With the help of a young, nature-loving boy named Sam, Louis seeks new ways to communicate. He begins in a classroom, where he learns to read and write in English, and is disappointed to find that these skills don't exactly translate to the other swans back home. When his father, a very dramatic and hilarious male swan, also known as a cob, decides to steal a trumpet to empower Louis with a voice of his own, our hero is saddled with all kinds of new problems, since he feels pressure to repay his family's debt to the music store. Combined with his incredible talents with the trumpet, Louis's need for cash takes him on another journey, this time to earn money as a musician at summer camps, nightclubs, the Philadelphia Zoo, and more. The Trumpet of the Swan explores themes of freedom, difference, family, safety, love, and yes, even capitalism. It's incredibly heartwarming and also loaded with clever humor. As you'll hear in this episode, it opens up space for conversations about ableism, listening, celebrity, materialism, and the weird ways in which we impose our human institutions onto animals. I didn't know this when I planned the episode, but my guests also have quite the personal connection to this book. You'll get all the details shortly. Our first guests of 2023 are Emily Wibberly and Austin Sigmund Broca. Emily and Austin met and fell in love in high school. Austin went on to graduate from Harvard and Emily from Princeton, and they are now married, living in Los Angeles, and taking daily inspiration from their own love story in their writing. Together, they are the authors of The Roughest Draft, as well as several novels about romance for teens. Their new adult romance, Do I Know You, hits shelves on January 24th. Follow Emily on Instagram at wibs underscore inc and Austin on Instagram at austin s underscore b. It was such a treat chatting with these two, and I can't wait to hear about your takeaways from this episode. If you would like to share your thoughts, social media is the best way to do it. SSR is on Instagram and Twitter at SSRpod, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. SSR also has a very busy Patreon community, which you can join for as little as $1 per month. That dollar will get you access to the SSR Discord channel, weekly exclusive Q&As with my guests, and more. Plus, it supports this indie podcast and is much appreciated. Learn more about everything else you can access as an SSR patron at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. 
Episode 226 is brought to you by the AHK Writing Community. If one of your goals for 2023 is to explore a new hobby or to lean into your creativity, this group might be exactly what you need. I started the AHK Writing Community last year in hopes of connecting aspiring fiction writers and sharing what I learned in my MFA program. Whether you think that writing short stories could just be something fun to do in your spare time, or you've already written half of a novel, you are welcome in this group. I offer accountability, workshopping, prompts, writing advice, sharing challenges, and lots of writing discussion. All of our founding members have stuck around since the beginning, which I like to think is a testament to what they're taking from the experience. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash ahkwriters, and feel free to send me a DM if you have any questions. I can't wait to meet you and to read your work. I'm lucky enough to be partnered with Inkwell Threads to bring you 20% off on all kinds of bookish tote bags, t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Shop the whole collection with me at www.inkwellthreads.com SSRpod or use code SSRpod at checkout to cash in on that 20% off offer. There are new styles dropping all the time and everything is very cute and high quality. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Emily. Hi, Austin. Welcome to SSR. Hi, we're so happy to be here. Thanks so much. And happy New Year, listeners. We are recording this in mid-November, but I guess when we are coming to you, it will be 2023. We will be through the holiday season. We are kicking off a new year of the podcast, and it's so fun to have both of you on to talk about a very special book today. We are talking about The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White, and if I'm not mistaken, when you filled out my little form, I'm pretty sure that, Austin, you had like a specific memory associated with this book. So I'm going to toss it to you first. Can you share a little bit about why this story is meaningful for you? My mom is a children's librarian, and before that, she was a reader of all sorts of children's literature to me. Uh, I like to say that's where she got her training. And um, one of the books that cut her teeth earliest was The Trumpet of the Swan. It was a classic of my childhood, something that was read to me as both a a, a great story, um, an introduction to the wonder of the world of animals, and also an introduction to the way that a young you know, creature in this case, but a child in mine could distinguish themselves and grow up in ways that maybe weren't always what was typically expected of them. Very much a foundational text. Didn't hurt that E.B. White is also the author or one half of the authors of Strunk and White. My mom, before she was a children's librarian, was a copy editor. Some attachment to the elements of style was a big, a big hit. <laughs> of course. I didn't know that. <laughs> it's the same white. Um, but so for multiple reasons grammar not foremost among them. This was a classic of my childhood. And it was wonderful to be able to revisit it. Then um, at our wedding, actually, yep. she 
did a reading during the ceremony and she read an excerpt from this book so that when it was one of the choices we were like we have to do this one and yeah we're actually reading the copy that like she Gifted gave us. us for our wedding that has like the book plate in there yeah it was perfect we're like there it is we should do this one this does happen occasionally where i will <laughs> accidentally include on the list of books that i offer guests a title that has like real importance to their lives this might take the cake as like the the biggest the most important title literally read at our wedding we we had to we had yeah. to. and i had never read it so this was like a perfect opportunity because yeah. you know it was right at the wedding we got this beautiful copy it was i was going to read it eventually and here we go okay i have so many questions okay <laughs> so can i pry and ask what part of it she read I think that she read, it was a while ago, but I think she read the part where the parents are talking about how they want their kid to find love one day, how they want Lewis to find love. And so I think that that was the part they were discussing, how important that is. And as parents, they were reading that at our wedding. Oh, that's and so Lewis's nice. feelings for Serena and how, you know, he, White writes so beautifully. There's, there's all sorts of, of concision and eloquence smuggled everywhere in this book. And one of the passages in which that really stands out is some of Lewis's thoughts and feelings on Serena, how that it takes him so fully in its grip and his parents can see that. And so it was, it, it was, it was a perfect reading. That is a perfect reading. So Emily, you had never read The Trumpet of the Swan. Did you read his other work when you were a kid, Stuart Little or Charlotte's Web? I feel like we all read Charlotte's Web. Yes. I certainly saw the movies yes. of all, I think both of them have had yeah. movies. Have had yeah. Movies. So I was glad that this one was not sad. <laughs> yeah. Charlotte's Web is sad. It's it really is sad. So this one, I feel like it's it, a story of great triumph. Yes, it's and... a more a more fun, upbeat story. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I went into this being like, I know that there is this right. There is some kind of love story in some sense, but I did not know beyond that. I really went in completely not knowing what this was about. Okay, so this is the third of E.B. White's children's books. And that's fitting because we have covered Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little on the podcast before. So again, this is all going perfectly. I couldn't have engineered it better myself. It's almost like I knew all of this before I suggested it. <laughs> going in, Which wow. I sure did not. So yeah, so I will say in terms of context, I have a similarly kind of tender spot in my heart for the trumpet of the swan, Austin, because my mom read this to me and it was like a very specific kind of read aloud experience in that I want to say I was probably six or seven. I had learned to read myself. I was probably reading chapter books slowly and very diligently at that point. But my mom would kind of cuddle up in bed with me every night and read X number of pages of The Trumpet of the Swan with me. And so it was like a months long project that we took on together. And I haven't read it picked it up since then but I as I was reading it like I was getting misty just like thinking about that memory and it also was at a time in my life as a child that was very difficult and it's it's so weird to come back to these books as an adult because I realize that I am now probably not far from the age that my mom was when she made the decision to like pick this book up and yeah. be like this is a book that I should read to, to my child in this difficult time in our shared life and I just, it was kind of tripping me out. 
Right. I agree. And, and I, I find it so interesting that you that you point that out about age, because I was reflecting on the same thing. What's what's so interesting about this is it's it's a children's book and it's a children's story. And it's a story of a character who starts out as a child. But by by the time it reaches its ending, it's really a story about how children become parents. Mm. Sam Beaver is 20 years old and working at the zoo. And Lewis and Serena have their own family. And so it reaches across and shows how the circle of life continues. And by the time you get to the end, there's as much nourishment there for the parent as there is for the child hearing about Lewis. Yeah, I just, I was thinking about my mom and like how she must have felt at this time. It really, it took me on a journey, this one. <laughs> and I also will say for the benefit of listeners who haven't listened to the Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little episodes, I will be sure to link those in the show notes. Charlotte's Web, my mom actually was the guest on that episode because it was a Mother's Day episode. So you can tune in to hear us talk about that, which I think we may have read together, but it wasn't like as, it's not as prominent a memory for me as The Trumpet of the Swan. And Stuart Little, which was weird to come back to as an adult. (laughs) I did not enjoy that one as an adult. It did not hold up for me. It was- Oh, really? I understand it's been heavily adapted into its certified banger of a movie. Oh, for sure. Quite a bit different. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, in the movie, he's adopted, which like, you're like, oh, okay, you know, sort of analogous to a rescue animal. In the book, this woman has given birth to a mouse. Yeah, it's oh. a pretty weird. Yeah. Thing. That's different. He also is like really rude to a girl on a date. Like, it's just bizarre. So The Trumpet of the Swan was much sweeter for me than Stuart Little. And it was published in 1970, like I said, the third of his three books for children. And I thought it was really cool because John Updike reviewed it in the New York Times. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. And he, of course, had the loveliest things to say about it because he himself is a beautiful writer. And maybe I'll share some of those excerpts as we get into it. Let's just jump in. So we actually, we start with Sam, who is the boy, not the swan. And I'm curious if and how either or both of you connected with Sam. He's kind of this private, introverted kid. He's spending the summer with his dad in the woods. He loves nature, loves to be outside. Um, What was it like for you to get acquainted with him as adults? I think, you know, One, he's an only child and I was an only child. And so that like the solitary time that he is just kind of spending, observing things felt very reminiscent of my own childhood of just kind of like following your own passions because you don't have other siblings to guide you or influence you. Um, But also I really liked his, he kind of ends most chapters like with a diary entry where he talks about what he observed and then he kind of ends on like this big, he just throws in like a big question sometimes. So he'll be like, what do, what am I going to be when I grow up? Or like, yeah. why do foxes bark? Like, what are they, yeah. what are they doing? And so I felt that that was so interesting. And I wonder if I can't, you know, I don't remember my thought process at that age, but I wonder how accurate that is. It must be that you just kind of throw in a giant question amongst just kind of like, I saw a swan and they had black feet and they had, you know, like a black bill and just like these very basic descriptions, which is funny for the idiosyncrasy of the speech pattern, but I think does also speak to something that sort of immediately comes out as you listen to Sam's narration and sort of this, this close third person, which is that he's very intelligent. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that. It's something, you know, that we focus on as, as writers for, for young people and as a, you know, appreciators of books for young people, White has written of a very realistic kid in that he is a deep thinker and he's quirky and he has contradictory notions. And sometimes he's able to identify impulses in himself with specificity without quite knowing where they come from. And all of this is very striking. 
as compared to child characters who are much more blank slates, mm-hmm. who just exist as happy drivers of plot. Sam has a lot of interiority and he thinks about stuff very deeply and very profoundly and isn't afraid to be his own guy. And so I really liked that on a second read. And I think I really liked it on a first read. I could sort of understand this kid who was a little quiet and a little detached from others in certain ways, but it was because he was pursuing his own passions. One of the things that I read in a review, maybe it was the Updike review, was a note about the lack of condescension in the way that White writes. And the reviewer pointed out that this condescension is missing both for the readers, but also for the characters. And I think that's really true because if you think about it, all of these books, they exist in what is largely like 95% a pretty realistic world, a rational world. You know, the seasons change, animals do what animals do, kids well, grow up. The Liberties Union. Right. Exactly, market. exactly. But then yeah. But then there's these like little weird things that are going on, like a, a woman is giving birth to a mouse or, um, yeah. you know, a, a spider and a pig are becoming best friends. Or in this case, a swan learns to overcome his personal challenges by first learning to write and then learning to play the trumpet. So it could be made to feel a little absurd and a little condescending, but something about the way that White writes it doesn't come off that way at all. He lays out what, again, seems to be a pretty rational universe and then is presenting readers with these little idiosyncrasies, these creative liberties that he's taken. And he also presents those same liberties to the characters in a very straightforward way. And I think it is very respectful to children, which is something that we do talk about in the podcast quite a bit, is the importance of being respectful to your readers because kids know, I think, kids know when you are not taking them seriously. Totally. They're heat seekers for it. Yes. I mean, he, he does so, and, and it's it's a nice, like, tonal thing across the board because it even extends to, like, the whole rest of the universe of the book. There's a curious lack of malice with which he treats almost everything. Even, there are only really a couple times where, where characters or instances appear, you know, villainous or misguided. In most cases, even, like, the old cop, who is, like, repeatedly the butt of the big <laughs> joke, even so... Every time he sprinkles it in with something about how much the wife appreciates him. She says, I, I always miss you when you're gone. I don't know why. Well, and he but also is like, the, like, he does get him the he trumpet. Is, like, the know? whole book hinges on him having done that. So he's not just there right. for he's comedic not. effect. He actually is. And the head manager in charge of birds. You know, he sits Sam down and says, look, man, I have a duty to the city of Philadelphia. They want to see these swans. And so even these characters who are purportedly villainous or ridiculous, we sort of get their side. Yeah, I think that's all very well said. So you you've brought up the cob, who is like the male swan. We have to talk about the cob and his wife. I think it's hilarious when we as humans like impose our human <laughs> right. moral constructions on animals. So I just I have to take a moment to point out that like I actually laughed out loud when oh, yeah. it is spelled out so clearly that it's like the swan and and her husband or like the cob and his wife. Like, ah, oh, yes, they are married. <laughs> Don't worry. They're not living in sin and having eggs outside of marriage. <laughs> oh, wait. They all. have they have officially been married, right. husband and wife. They have said their vows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny. So they're married. They're floating around on a pond. And we find out that the wife, the, so I, I also found in a couple of reviews that it's interesting that 
of course, the cob, we know as the cob throughout the whole book, but we never, like, there's not really an easy shorthand mm-hmm. that we can use to distinguish the wife. So, like, the wife, the mom, I don't know. Yeah. So she realizes that she's going to hatch some eggs, which sounds like a very difficult, time-consuming process. <laughs> and there was kind of a funny, I thought, like, tongue-in-cheek, like, reference to domestic roles where the cob is like, do you ever get sick and tired of sitting on all these eggs. And I thought in a very 1970s move um, and also a little bit of like a a man writing this kind of move was like, you know, her response was something to the effect of like, yes, it's very tiring, but I of course will do this. It's such a sacrifice that I'm willing to make for the, for the good of our eggs. (laughs) Not sure that would happen in 2022 or 2023. Am I wrong there? (laughs) Yeah, definitely a little reassurance. (laughs) Yeah. So we meet them and let's talk about the cob and how funny he is. And I, I think as adults, we read it differently. Absolutely. I, I feel like there's so many jokes in this. That's our dog groaning. I'm sorry if you hear it. It's okay. I had to kick mine out because all he does is groan and sigh as though he, you know, is so exhausted. Yeah. There are so many jokes that I wonder if they even play for kids, but they certainly uh-huh. play for adults. Yeah. And so it's always nice when like, like, you know, it's something Pixar movies do too, yeah. like where you can have layers to it that when you revisit it as an adult, or if you're a parent engaging in this media with your kid, like there is something there for you as that well. Resonates. Like you don't just have to watch through the eyes of your child, but yeah. you can watch through your own eyes as well. And I feel like, I think that a kid would find his long-winded speeches funny because he is very comedic and how he is, he's very vain. I mean, he's a swan, he's a vain swan, but he's also also is kind of like that typical dad kind of vibe that that an adult would pick up on that he likes to get you know he likes the part where he's like oh yeah you thought i had the best the Mm -hmm. best voice and all of all the swans i had the best tell me more about that (laughs) that's so nice to hear he's he's very funny and 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 particularly like you know not to bring it back to this but you know white being a, a a grammatician and a real like student of writing it's funny to me that he engineers his jokes out of how unnecessarily written his characters. It's a quirk of humor that uh, really did resonate with me personally. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was so funny. So listeners, for those of you who haven't revisited this book in a long time, the Cobb is just like the most dramatic of the dramatic. He cannot open his beak without saying a full monologue. Like he doesn't speak in short sentences. He just goes on and on and but what's interesting about the Cobb is that I think, and and this speaks to something that we were talking about before, he could be perceived as like this totally narcissistic character. And he does have moments like that. And when the eggs hatch and they discover that one of this, the baby swans does not have the ability to make the trumpeting sound that these trumpeter swans are so well known for, he is extremely insecure about it at first. Like it's something that he's concerned about. And I want to dig into this more, but just while we're digging into him specifically, it's a lot about how he is like, oh, how could I be the patriarch of this imperfect family? You know, like how am I to deal with the fact that one of my swans can't just glide around the pond like the rest of the swans? And he he ultimately is able to redeem that thought pattern in his relationship with Louis, in his relationship with his wife, and the things that in his wife that just made me laugh <laughs> with the things that he does to protect his family. And so I feel like even as this pompous, vain, over the top swan, he is very empathetic as a character. 
Yes. Yeah, and he has that kind of sitcom dad mm. thing where they at first the wife is like, "Have you noticed that one of our 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 children can't make a sound?" And he's like, "No, I don't think so." And it's like he's clueless right. because we yeah. have all noticed this by now. And he's like, "I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't know." And then he kind of observes and he sees that she's right. And then he gives this really more reassuring, empathetic talk to his son where he says like, you're very intelligent. Like, I know that you can't talk, but I know that you're intelligent. And like, that was like such a sweet dad moment where you have to see that this character is not just here yeah. to be comedic. He is not just here to be clueless or to be, you know, self-centered and, and kind of putting the child's, you know, learning disability as his own like personal problem. He is actually saying, I understand that you're intelligent and yeah. I'm gonna help you. We see him do it see him worry about it and, and, and turn around about it outside of Lewis's company. But with Lewis, he is the voice to tell him, you know, no, you, you are, you are good. You are, are, are everything I want you to be. And that's, that's a great, that's a great stroke of the character. I actually have two quotes of his that I think kind of illustrate his arc. So Initially, when he's talking to his wife, he says, do you wish me to believe that I have a son who is defective in any way? Such a revelation would distress me greatly. I want everything to go smoothly in my family life so that I can glide gracefully and serenely now in the prime of my life without being haunted by worry or disappointment. Fatherhood is quite a burden at best. I do not want the added strain of having a defective child, a child that has something the matter with him. And I want to call out the use of the word defective, which is obviously very upsetting. Yes. But then he, in a conversation with Louis, and I think this is shortly after the quote that, that you shared, says, remember that the world is full of youngsters who have some sort of handicap that they must overcome. You apparently have a speech defect. I am sure you will overcome it in time. There may even be some slight advantage at your age in not being able to say anything. It compels you to be a good listener. The world is full of talkers, but it is rare to find anyone who listens. And I assure you that you can pick up more information when you are listening than when you are talking. Now, of course, there's the irony that the cop never stops talking, like truly never stops talking. And we don't necessarily get to see like the interior part of the cop's journey where he realizes like, oh, maybe I should stop thinking about my child as defective and start celebrating his difference. But he does get there eventually and he is able to communicate that with Louis in a way that I thought was quite beautiful and as we were talking about before, like would hopefully connect with kid readers on one level and adult readers on another level. Yeah. And I do like, you know, there's definitely conversations we had about ableism in, in the book, especially the way that he speaks about, they all speak about him as defective, which is not a term we would like to use or a way of viewing this. But I did appreciate when he gives him that talk and he explains the differences between dumb and he's saying, you know, and I think that as a, it is, it's a conversation that maybe should still be had of like, you know, kids do call each other dumb and dumb actually does mean unable to speak. And so he's, he's explaining to him that you're not dumb. Like you're not stupid. You are just unable to speak. And I thought that that was, despite the ableism in the rest of the book, that was a nice touch. I agree. And I had forgotten about that meaning of the word dumb because it, it startled me when I read it because listeners, there is a moment where the cob refers to Louis as dumb. And of course that's upsetting for this little baby swan. And as you said, Emily, he then goes on to explain that like, no, there's like two different ways to use the word. And I had forgotten that because I think honestly, the only time that I've heard the word dumb used that way is that song, um, Pinball Wizard, 
where it's like that definite <laughs> blind thing. And I'm like, oh, right. Okay, so that is a way that we use the word, but it, it's helpful to have little teachable moments in a book like this to guide those conversations. Yeah. We get through that kind of like intellectual growth, I think, for the cob. And then he decides that he is going to take matters into his own hands because his own hands, his own flippers. <laughs> Feathers, I don't feathers, know. <laughs> his little webbed feet. He's taking yeah. matters into his webbed feet. And he's like, if I could get a trumpet for Louis, then this will be fine. Because at this point, the parents' primary concern, because again, we're talking about animals that have to survive. Their number one priority is making sure that Louis is going to be able to find a mate, which is, I'm like, oh, right, there are animals. Like they're, they're written in such a human way that you forget that their primary concerns are like survival, mating, finding food, the end. But in the meantime, Louis turns to their pal, Sam. We bring back our little friend, Sam Beaver, and he pulls his shoelace, which I thought was so cute. Um, and Sam is very charmed by this. And so Louis kind of realizes that Sam could be an ally. And Sam invites him to go to school with him where he learns to read and write. And just the notion of this little swan waddling into school. And I have to tell you, I do not like birds. I'm very afraid of birds. <laughs> My mom is terrified of birds, so and she has passed that on to me. So the fact that she chose this book for us to read together before I went to bed, like that's a bold choice. <laughs> but even I was charmed by the image of this little swan waddling in. The illustrations are so cute, by the way. He just waddles in and he goes to like the kindergarten class and Sam goes to the bigger kid class and he learns to read and write. What did you all think about that little journey that they took? I, I love that, you know, there's like, there's these moments where things are not possible. Like a lot of the story is very grounded. Yeah. And then there are parts where mm -hmm. you just have to step outside and you're like, okay, the swan is going to learn how to read and write. But I did love that he then brings it back to being grounded because when, when Louis returns to his, to his Great. the swans and he, he's like, I now I can tell Serena that I love her. I wrote it on my chalkboard. And he's like, oh, wait, swans can't read. Like, this is not actually going to help me. Like, I went to school and learned it. So it's like there's some rules of the world that are applied in a way that makes you able to, like, keep to keep reading and, and not have to suspend disbelief too much. I also think that throughout the book, he does, um, there's these little, like, educational moments where, like, when he is learning, he has to write cat. And then the teacher is right. like okay, now try a harder word. Let's do catastrophe. catastrophe. And then in his head, he's like, well, I just will treat that like the just same. Like just a word. longer, I'll just write it for longer. And I feel like a kid learning how to read and write, reading that or having that read to them might, you know, be encouraging. I, I read that line actually out loud to Emily because I thought it was so funny. You know, because first Louis approaches it very rationally. He's like, I'll just do it like I do a shorter word. I'll write every letter until I get to the end. And then he adds, besides, my life is a catastrophe. It's <laughs> like, so, so easy I, I loved this part and I, and I loved the right the little ending of it that he then gets back home and he's got his placard and he's thrilled and it all comes to nothing because he he can't nobody else can swans read. can't read um, so sad and that's what I found so interesting is this, to, to you know to the extent the book is viewed through the lens of disability and ableism that is an interesting part right because it starts out with Louis and I think he even does so on page he bemoans why is he different from everybody else? Why does everybody else have this thing and he, and he doesn't? When he gets back from school, his woe is the reverse, which is why isn't the rest of the world like me? Mm -hmm. Why has everything else caught up to what I've had to do? 
Why isn't the system that I'm living in more facilitatory of what I can do? Yeah, that if everybody learned to read, you know, then he wouldn't have this this situation yeah. to deal with. Yeah. So I, it's not really played for that, but I, I did find it interesting. I also, I also, you know, to bring it back to, to Sam and what we're saying about, about the Cobb's quote about the good listener, I thought it was interesting because ultimately in his life, Louis, you know, doesn't, isn't known for being a good listener. He's known for being a great trumpeter. But Sam is, although he is not led to that by some sort of physical difference, he's the good listener the Cobb is describing. Mm-hmm. Sam's quote is charted by the fact that as the wife observes, he just sits on the bank and watches. He just waits for inspiration to come to him. He just immerses himself in the world until interest materializes. And so they're a good pair of characters. Yeah. You can kind of treat them one of two ways and both ways of being a kid are valid. Absolutely. And I, as we're having this conversation about what this book is, or isn't saying about ableism, about different abilities. Um, I wanted to share this one quote from a review I found on tour.com that's called Overcoming Silence, the Trumpet of the Swan. And it says, unfortunately, Louis's new skill only allows him to talk to humans. It doesn't allow him to talk to swans. May I just digress for a moment and say that I have no idea how intentional this was, but from a disability standpoint, I love this as an acknowledgement that not all medical aids will help under all circumstances or help all problems. And that in some cases, disabled users will need to work with one tool or aid in one situation and another tool or aid in a second situation, depending with no one size fits all solution. I also love the acknowledgement that this is not an instant cure and that Louis has to learn his assistive device. So I thought that was like a very practical take on it. It also made me think of, um, have you read the book True Biz, either of you? I haven't read it, but I, our, our friend adores it. And so yes, it's on the list. So it was one of my favorite books of the year. And I in a way that I'm not proud of, knew very little about the deaf and hard of hearing community when I started reading the book. And what it does is illuminate the challenges that come up when some folks who are deaf or hard of hearing learn sign language and mm-hmm. when others do not. And how right. learning how to compensate for a challenge with hearing um, in different ways can actually put people at different levels of advantage and disadvantage. And so as I was reading this book, I couldn't help but think of True Biz because I was like, here we have Louis thinking that he's doing the right thing by learning to write. Yeah. And and by the same token, I think a lot of parents of non-hearing or hard of hearing children think that they're doing the right thing by teaching their kids or getting them help in learning ASL, for example. But if they are then in a community with other non-hearing folks who have not learned ASL, that's not helpful. And and the same goes for the opposite. Like in the book, there are people who have grown up in homes where their parents thought that it was better for them to learn to lip read. Um, and so then they can't communicate with their peers who right. communicate primarily through ASL. So I just like couldn't stop thinking about that as I was reading. Absolutely. And and overall, the idea that this isn't this isn't a cure narrative at all, like this Mm -mm. is respectful in that sense of this is this is not the story of a swan who then learns how to speak. It's not he learns a bunch of other things and a bunch of other ways to communicate. And he learns he learns other skills that other people don't have for it. Yeah. So then the next thing that we're going to try, because of the Cobb's suggestion and his decision that he's going to become a burglar is a trumpet. And so the Cobb and all of his Cobb 
bravado. It's like, I'm going to go steal a trumpet for Louis. And he flies through a glass window, which is just so intense. Yeah, yes. just straight, straight through. It's like, it's a literal crime scene. I mean, there's like, there's blood everywhere. And he flies the trumpet back and gives it to Louis. And Louis is, of course, a musical genius. He immediately learns how to use the trumpet to communicate. And he now has a moral conundrum, which is like, I have stolen property on my flipper. Like, well, I keep wanting to say hands, but that's not the right word. Stolen property around my neck. That's right. He's collecting all care. these things. Yes, I love the image. Of so he now has this slate and chalk, and he also has a trumpet hanging off of his neck, and he's soon going to get a medal and a money bag. Like he, I don't know how this dude flies. So he learns to play the trumpet, and he wants to earn money, and Sam is like, I'm going to get you a job. Like, let's just, we're going to make this happen. And he goes to camp to be the bugler, which was adorable. <laughs> yes, it's perfect. Perfect. Yes, I think it is so he is like, before I can get Serena, I need to pay off my father's debt. My debt. He, his soul has right. been marked by what he has done for me. And I need to, I need to fix this before I can be happy. Right. Again. Yeah. The cop about it is so funny because it's like, bro, you, you flew through the window. Did you not know you would feel this way? <laughs> that, like this is the stealing. Right. <laughs> Again, we are imposing our human morality on animals. You have to be married. And in order to be married, you have to repay your debts. Um, because somewhere there is a human who owns a music store who was like, oh, that damn bird who stole my trumpet, he better pay me back. <laughs> yeah, White's take on materialism, as, as Alan told me, is, is, is super funny. It, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the book. That he's, you know, at various times, Lewis is like, if only I were unburdened by these possessions, I could fly better. Yeah, and then like, like I, I don't like to have him, so many things. Yeah, she's like, oh, that that young cob has things around his neck. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, it's little of, of his time societal flourishes yeah absolutely that's a great point because i remember thinking like oh serena's into this like serena is like oh hey look at that guy with all of his stuff <laughs> Funny. she isn't portrayed wholly flatteringly but she isn't just a blank slate you know good natured chaste little figure either she is kind of a caricature of a high society wife in a way that is, again, I'm not really sure why he did that. I mean, her, her name, as, as you mentioned with the cop, he, he talks about gliding serenely. And I, I doubt white was unintentional when he gave the, the female uh -huh. counterparts name, you know, the, the same, the same route to make her signify ease and grace. She's just kind of amusing. Yeah. Cause she totally blows him off initially because like she, right. he's, He's flirting. I understand. Yeah, which I get. I mean, I get. Like, they are literally not speaking the same language. But he totally strikes out at first when he's trying to, you know, glide around and be like, mm -hmm -hmm, look at my slate. I'm fancy. And she's not picking up what he's laying down. Yeah. Mom yeah. Mom comes off like the mother's in Downton Abbey. She's so she's so chastising of Serena. <laughs> yeah, she's very dismissive of that empty-headed little whatever. She's, she's quite critical. Yeah. yeah, she's like, I don't know. <laughs> chosen her so i guess we have to make it yeah. work yeah. yeah she should be so lucky as to be with my yeah. talented multilingual louis yeah so he goes to become the bugler at camp which i thought was very sweet he saves the life of a boy named applegate what was his last name skinner. applegate yeah. skinner what a name i mean Write that one down for we this this should inspire all of us to have better character names because applegate skinner is really good Really good. Yeah. So he saves Applegate Skinner's life. And as a result, he gets 
some sort of a, a medal of honor from Washington, D.C. Are we to believe that this is from the president himself? I know, I know. I wonder. <laughs> I, I think that's what we're supposed to believe. So now, again, he has this medal that he's flying with. And he still wants more money because he doesn't really know how much a trumpet costs, which I did think was very sweet because it's like the most valuable thing that he owns. And so to him, like it must be worth so much money. So he needs to get another job. And Sam suggests that he goes to Boston to work on the swan boat. And this is where we get into like capitalism because uh-huh. because the man who runs the swan boat is profiting so much off of Louie. Like we get these little sort of, references to how he's just raking it in and I think these are things as adults that we're able to to clock maybe more than a kid can because I'm reading this and I'm like this guy is shady like he is working the swan so hard it's also funny they include that he includes the line about like well it must be nice to be a swan because it's all pure profit (laughs) what there's no overhead pay for eggs and, and a can rent. of Ajax at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like, I mean, he's, his life is constantly on the line, swan man. Like, he he's yeah. at risk always. I thought that was funny too. So as he is like, you know, working with the swan boat, he's becoming something of a celebrity. And his next step is going to be Philadelphia. And I think when I when I picked up the book for some reason, I thought that it took place in Central Park. Like, that was my memory of it. And I think it's because I have other memories of like birds that were in Central Park, but it makes sense because I live in Philadelphia and I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. So I'd imagine that that when I was a kid at the time, it felt very relevant to me that it was taking place in Philly. And so he goes to Philly where he gets the offer to play at a nightclub. (laughs) Where does he get the stuff? I mean, when you're a famous swan, Austin, like the offers, they come flying in. <laughs> the funny part of that, it's like he's playing at a nightclub, but he has to stay at the zoo. <laughs> like right. yes. he can't, that, that's the place that he, he needs to, that's, to remain. Yeah. He doesn't stay at the hotel no, or just in a lake this time. He he's got to stay at the zoo. Well, he tried the hotel thing and it was, it got weird for him, which I thought was funny. Like I love, so he orders 12 watercress sandwiches and, and this is where we see like the natural world and the human world begin to collide because as much as humans are kind of trying to put Louis in this box of being a celebrity who can serve them in a way that feels equal somehow like he's not equal he's a bird he's a bird and he wants to eat watercress sandwiches and he's taking a bath in the bathtub and it's all very funny but he does not feel comfortable in the hotel um and so ultimately he is allowed to stay at the zoo I thought it was funny how the initial reason that he was at the hotel to begin with is because people were like concerned for his security and safety they're like you are famous now we cannot let you go out on the town without safety so that's why you're going to stay at the Ritz but that doesn't work so he's going to stay at the at the zoo and this is where we, we start to get into a conversation about how to weigh the values between safety and freedom because he gets to the zoo and he finds that all of the swans that are on this bird lake have had their wings clipped so they can't fly. And Louis's agent has, of course, made a deal with the zookeeper that Louis will stay at the zoo and perform with some regularity for the benefit of zoo patrons, but in return, they can't clip his wings. And so that's kind of how he's allowed to stay at the zoo without following the same protocol as the other birds. And this is really hard for Louis to see and to weigh. What did you think about all of that coming to this book as an adult? Yeah, I think that it's, it's, you know, it's interesting that he it is definitely this idea of like, what does freedom 
mean? Because of course, Louis is choosing to stay at the zoo and he could theoretically return to the zoo and stay there for periods of time. And just like the way that they migrate to all these places, he could theoretically do that, but he doesn't want to strike that kind of deal. He wants to always have the freedom to come and go as he wishes. And of course, this is a very like American theme yeah. of like, we, it has to be it has to be his choice to be here. The clipped wings is not right, even if he is right now living like these other swans in the zoo. It's I think White's way as well of, of encouraging in another form, his, you know, his, his love and his espousal of the natural world. I think mm-hmm. we start with the wonder of it, the animals and, and their, you know, their community and the, and the beauty of the natural world and the miracle of them, you know, of the, of the eggs hatching. And by the end, what we have gotten to is instead a comparison where he is sort of saying in, in you know, these last two segments and particularly in the last segments, that the more entrenched and the more mired you get in cities, in economics, in jobs, in things like that, the more you are paying costs and mm-hmm. existing in these systems requires your freedom being being limited in mm-hmm. certain ways. And so I think it's a different philosophical reflection of how perhaps as the author clearly feels, uh, you know, seeing as he said this in Montana, living in a, a simpler, more nature oriented world might be a salve to some of the the stresses and the tricks and the troubles of trying. But I also find it interesting that he's not like, oh, zoos are evil. He doesn't treat zoos like this, like jailer, even though they are for Louis, they're kind of the antagonist for him. He is evading the catchers, the ones who are trying to clip the wings. But Sam, you know, does decide he wants to work at a zoo. And so it's not painted as this evil thing. It is painted. He shows both colors of it that like this is going to be something that will expose people to wildlife. And that's a helpful thing for the community and like protecting wildlife and keeping them safe is also valuable. But Louis doesn't want to be part of that. And that is his choice. And he is a free bird. Yeah, it's quite nuanced at the end. Yeah. And now I'm thinking, okay, so my wheels are turning. And okay, so the reason that Louis has found himself in this situation where he owes all of this money, or he thinks he owes all this money, is because he has had to make or the people who care about him have had to make these investments for him to have aid so that he can be at equal, at an equal playing field with his peers. And so as a result of all of this, like all, all of the challenges and the moral conundrums that he's now facing can kind of be traced back to the fact that he was born with some difference. Yeah. And so of course now I'm like, oh, this feels like another level of commentary of like how much harder it is. Right, how much do you have? The financial costs and how the, co- the country is not built to help the natural order of the Swan community is not helping these parents. And also the United States is not helping these parents. They are going into debt to do this. So I don't know if he intended that, but you can absolutely read it. And then they could go into a life of crime. Like, where does it stop? Right. (laughs) Right. And then you're flying around with all this stuff around your neck, literally weighing you down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just, there's so much here. And so the good news is that he does get Serena. Serena flies to the zoo sort of by accident. He waits until she's comfortable and then reacquaints himself with her and they fall in love. The end of the book is like a little chaotic. There's a lot going on. Yeah. He There's a deal that is, is negotiated where Serena can also stay and not have her wings clipped. 
and they can stay there while Louis plays music. He's also, oh, by the way, he's also been playing with the Philadelphia Orchestra, no big deal. And they will hatch their their eggs there every year and and one egg one baby swan will have to stay i was like that's kind of a serious deal <laughs> yeah. but they're like one of my babies will have to be we'll offered work, we'll and just sacrifice. work one over because sam said so <laughs> it's extremely dark like sam needs to work on his negotiating skills so so that happens that's one weird thing and then the chaos of the cob there's i feel like there's some commentary about police corruption I feel like there's more capitalism stuff because this, this, this Cobb is trying to like make good on his debts and there's like the, the Cobb thinks that he died and he does this whole dramatic display of like, I will never fly again. It was, it was chaotic. Yeah. I think it's largely think it's meant for comedic. comedy. I think yeah. that he just wanted. I loved it. Ending of like, and I, I, none of this, is this going to play to a kid? Are no. they going to understand that? The shop owner thinks the money belongs to him. Right. And then the police officer is like, no, like it's going to be mine because I'm taking you into custody. And then the right. bird guy is like, no, it's mine because I'm taking the bird into custody. And so it's like all of these. I did basically read it as like another another point for the animals. Yes. Because the comparison point is, right, Louis and his dad spend their entire lives trying to pay back a debt. And they do so more than in full. The minute that money yeah. gets into human hands, it is a nightmare. <laughs> it's it's a, a catastrophe, Louis would say. It's every party vying in every way they can to cheat their way into this money. It's the exact opposite, in other words. But then, ultimately, it gets donated to charity. So then yes. it's like, this is how you deal with it. To the Audubon into, Society. Yes. It was so funny. But I definitely was like, when I was a kid, I def I probably thought that the cob died. And and luckily right. then and oh, then you have the joy of like oh he's fine but as an adult I was like there is just so much happening here on the whole like I I think it's pretty clear I really enjoyed coming back to this book I knew that I would have some nostalgic feelings about it I didn't expect to be as sentimental or to connect some of those dots they mentioned earlier quite as much as I did but there's just so much to read into with this story and I guess because you you each have a different experience with this book I have a slightly different question for each of you. And I'll start with you, Emily. So you didn't read The Trumpet of the Swan when you were a kid, but I'm curious if coming back to it now, if it met your expectations and if it did hold up to the memories that you have of similar work, whether it's E.B. White's other work or other books that you read when you were around the same age. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that it's, there's not as many, I, I feel like I don't have memories of like funny books. And I feel like this is a funny book that like, it would be fun to have that read to you as a kid and it would be fun to read it to a kid because there is so much humor in it and that is unusual and it is a, a great quality of it. I was trying to think about if my mom would have like tried to explain any of these jokes to me yeah. and I, I maybe someday I'll ask her if she remembers uh, if there were any like little side conversations that she and I had while we were reading it together. Austin, having read this book, and clearly having fond memories of it, I, I would tweak the question and ask you, how does this reread experience hold up um, or compare to the memory that you have of it from when you were a kid? To be perfectly honest, all the, the positive feelings are the same, but the experience was quite a bit different. I remember, how I remember it in my head is as a much more, and, and you're gonna laugh, is a much more sweet, grounded story. Yeah. And it's not, it's not that. It's a, it is a, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like the Odyssey. It's this, it's this like quasi surreal journey through American society. I mean, almost in, in the vein of like Mark Twain or something. In the end, 
I really liked that. I really appreciated that. I think I didn't appreciate it that way as a kid because I didn't, you don't, when you're a kid, you don't have as good a radar for what's normal and what's not normal. And, and sort of like, as you're trying to be more grown up and you're trying to assimilate. And so you assume everything's normal, but now I can sort of sense all the ridiculousness of it. But in the end, I, I really liked that because the whole point behind all of those little bits of the story are, I feel like, is they show that where somebody in, in the position of, of Lewis or his parents might want nothing more than a normal and ordinary life for their kid. The truth of this story is Lewis doesn't have an ordinary life. He has an extraordinary life. And I thought that was really cool. He lives such a story of, of heroism and flourish that um, while it ends with him settling down with Serena, that isn't like the main part of the book. It's him going through all of the many exciting and you know remarkable places that his life leads him. So yeah, I, I thought it I thought it um, compared very well and very interestingly. I love this one. What a way to kick off the new year on SSR. But let's talk about other things that you've been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners. It's a new year. Again, we're getting our TBRs in order. What would you recommend? I just read this book called The Rewind by Alison Wingscotch. It's very fun. It is like um, romance, but also just kind of classic rom-com about a couple who, people who were together in college who have broken up and then 10 years later in 1999 at the millennium, they are at their, at a wedding at their college campus. Something happens, they wake up the next morning, they're in bed together with wedding rings on their fingers and they don't know what happened. So it's kind of like the hangover meets when Harry met Sally, they need to figure out what happened last night. I love that. I'm a huge fan of her book, Cleo McDougall. What's, I forget what the end of the title is. Cleo McDougall likes to win. I love her her last book. So I'll have to pick that one up. You know, the other thing that we um, have have had, you know, such a pleasure to enjoy and are so looking forward to regrets nothing. Books. That's the, I was like, what regrets is that? Yes, Cleo McDougall regrets nothing. It's a it's a hard title to remember, but a very good book to read. So listeners, you know, it's great. yeah, yes, yeah. That, <laughs> you know, we always love to shout out our our, our dear friend Bridget Morrissey, who has a, an upcoming book called That Summer Feeling, and it's going to be fantastic. We um, have had very much the inside scoop on that one. It is about a, a woman recently divorced who goes to a summer camp for adults, much like the one where Applegate Skinner attends, but <laughs> for adults. And there she encounters a man about whom uh, some time ago she had a very strong premonition. And as her time at the summer camp continues, she begins to realize that perhaps the premonition concerned not him, but his sister. So it's very, it's very clever. Um, it has this light supernatural element that is used to, and to it's a romance. wonderfully twisted effect. And it's a romance. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. And now I'm going to turn the spotlight onto you two and your work. I have been seeing the roughest draft everywhere. It is like Bookstagram's darling right now as we are talking. Um, and I'd love for you to share a little bit more about it and anything else that you want to talk about that you have coming up. Yeah, um, The Roughest Draft is our adult romance about two authors, co-authors like us, who um, split four years ago on unknown mysterious reasons and haven't spoken since and now have to come back together to fulfill their writing contract and write one more book together and unravel what happened and their feeling complicated feelings that are kind of coming out 
into the book that they're writing. And then also we have upcoming, it'll be kind of close to when this comes out. Re really close, actually. It's, it's January 24, 2023. Our second adult romance is called Do I Know You? And it is about a couple married for five years who have started to lose the spark in their marriage, um, which makes it a very inconvenient time for them to be going on a week-long getaway to a lavish Northern California resort for their fifth anniversary. While there, due to a series of misunderstandings, they find themselves pretending that they are strangers who've never met. And it helps them restore their spark, but also learn again how to get to know each other. So it's sort of about, you know, after, after being married for five years, having what feels like your first date. So these are, you know, these are, are, are obviously stories personally inspired in one way or another. We've kind of taken characters who are dealing with some of the professional and personal stages of life that we are and um, stretching them into some rom-com <laughs> concepts that we have honestly had so much fun writing. And we're, you know, we're, we're so flattered by the attention for Rough Draft and very excited for Do I Know You to come out soon. Well, that's, I mean, I'm excited for it to come out and I love to hear, I love to hear when couples are writing together. Uh, it is, it's fascinating to me to even consider because I can't, I can't imagine how you do it, but I'm thrilled for you and your success and listeners, make sure you check out these books. Those will also be linked in the show notes. Um, yeah, we're two weeks out now from your new book. So go pre-order it. We love a pre-order. Yes. Pre-orders are important. Do not underestimate the power of a pre-order. Well, I really appreciate the time that you took both to read this book and to chat about it with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank it was you. a pleasure. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>